Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This week's episode of Rock on Tours was recorded before the passing of Charlie Watts. Hey, Guy. So we both went to see shows this week. We did. Well, yes, I went to the Foodie Festival because um, Outline, my son's duo, were playing. But you went to a proper show. I'm not saying that wasn't a proper show, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went to see Chic and Nile Rogers play at uh, Hampton Court in that beautiful courtyard there. It was weird to be back in a crowd again. I mean, they were amazing and everyone was up dancing and it was an absolutely fantastic show. People sort of felt liberated, but it did feel a little like, should we be doing this? But um, there were all COVID checks and stuff that had to be done before. I went to a sort of birthday thing last week and sort of everyone... Practically everyone there has now come down with COVID. Luckily, I've tested negative. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's going to be yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, but um, it was it was just nice to hear some music. And they're such an incredible oh, God, yeah. band. And hit after hit. Yeah. I would have loved to have <clears> come. Yeah, my invite only extends <laughs> to my wife, not my, not my well, male wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gaz Coombs, Supergrass. Supergrass, I'm really looking forward to this. Amazing band that sort of started from, I mean, they were like children and just sort of came out fully formed and just hit it running, didn't they? Yeah, there's some rumour that Spielberg wanted to make a sort of monkeys series with them. I'm not not sure how true that is. They fit that profile, didn't they? I mean, all the the fun, cheekiness, difference being they wrote all their own songs, of course. And he's made some fantastic solo albums, which I've been digging into and I'm really impressed by. Should we get him on? We shall. Welcome to the Rock On Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Contours podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. All right. Hello, guys. All right. Hey, Gaz. Hello oh, like there. Hi, I Gaz. Mean, where is that? Is that in Oxford? Are you still there? Oh, my house. Yeah. Yeah. That looks, that looks great. And you, how often do you wander into the studio? It's a beautiful Wurlitzer there, I can see. How often do you wander into the studio for a play? Every day. Every day. Yeah. I mean, even if I've got nothing to do uh, or I've got no ideas, I just go in and sit and just turn stuff on. And then yeah, something normally happens. You just walk past the piano and hammer a few chords. And, but it's great. I mean, it really helps, actually, just to sort of have a place to go to that, that you can just, you know, yeah. push it. Yeah. One does get the impression from you guys that it does seem to pour out of you. I mean, you don't have a problem, uh, you know, coming up Yeah, with I don't know. No, I mean, there's, there, there are sort of there are trickier times, for sure. You know, there's like, um, you haven't been too kind of creative the last couple of weeks. But, uh, oh God! Yeah. These last couple of weeks have been hell. Don't start us on the last couple of weeks. But hey, hang on, I just want to—I just want to step because uh, you know, as a songwriter, I'm interested in uh, the process that you go through. So you go in, and everything is going into your computer somehow, so you can like just plumb it in at any time. 
have a little fiddle and and then record, right? Yeah, yeah. You, so you don't ever try and finish a song? Do you try to build it on a computer first? No, I mean, it's it depends. I mean, I might have kind of written the song on acoustic or piano or just kind of got the, the rough idea together. And then it's just a case of just chipping away, really. I don't know, I find it quite hard to commit to something unless I know it's it's got legs. And do you have do you have piano songs and guitar songs? Are they kind of they've gone very distinct things? I know Gary, for instance, on his last album, sort of made himself right on the piano. Yeah, yeah, no, it was much more that way. I just prefer sitting down with without something heavy on my lap anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So oh, so you're not doing the Santa? The the, the, the ventriloquism's (laughs) over. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird one, isn't it? It's like I don't know. It's it's hard to sort of say really because I mean they start or, or it'll start on drums or. Wow. I quite like to make little loops, so I might just mess around on a synth for a bit or just create some sort of loop in the studio that has some kind of melodic kind of thread. Yeah. Or even if it's just one sort of drone note. Mm. Yeah, and then I just sit and play to it, really. So it's kind of like just creating another musician in the room that I could just sort of play along to. And I find sort of all single note drones and, and sort of weird loops are great to play to because you just sort of yeah. you hit different chords and you may sort of hit a chord that you wouldn't normally hit that goes with that that kind of harmonic note that's droning in the background. And then it just gives you these these weird sort of progressions that maybe I wouldn't normally get if I just sat with a guitar. Well, it's the same thing using guitar tunings, isn't it? Some, where that whole thing of having a new instrument you don't yeah. really recognise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, new, new tunings are brilliant, especially when you try sort of, yeah. you know, original sort of finger positions and go, no, that doesn't work. Oh, that sounds awful. Then, then you just hit upon some... What, what didn't you call one of your songs after the low C? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it had a kind of double meaning, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about um, lyrics? Do you find you sometimes have a lyrical idea before a musical idea? And, or do you struggle with the lyrics? Or Because you, you're a great storyteller. You, they always seem really accomplished, your, your words. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, lyrics are a funny one, really. They sort of, there's no real rule, you know, with how they come about. Again, it might just be a hook lyric that comes with the original idea. Maybe a couple of little lines. And then they can take a while, you know, they can take a while. You know, quite often I might do a, a gobbledygook vocal. I might do a sort of a, like a vibe vocal just to see where I'm at, mainly to sort of nail the melody down. Within that, there's always something. There's always lines that I kind of spit out. You were writing jokey songs when you I mean, incredibly young. You seem to come up fully formed at the age of 14. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> With sideburns. Things like you keep punching me in, in a place in Birmingham. And uh, Harvey, the accountant, was uh, one I wrote when I was about 13. Yeah, but what's great is you went straight for playful rather than sort of at that age, it's very easy to do teenage angst. Yeah, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, always, it was good to sort of get into writing early as well. I don't know, I never really did the covers thing. I mean, we, maybe in our school band, we played some Cure and some Dinosaur Junior and a, and a bit of Pixies and stuff. Oh, but we should get that because I'm very interested in Hot Rat. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interested to hear you. Uh, I listened to your version of Bike, because, of course, Gary and I do that with the sources. I'm very interested to see how you approach the timing of it. Keep it all really free. Actually, the, the, yeah. the mad cover of um, uh, This Time Tomorrow by The Kinks a few years back, and I knew that I wanted yeah. to kind of capture a similar sort of energy and vibe, and I was laying down different versions and, you know, trying it with a click and, and all that sort of stuff, and it, I just wasn't really, I wasn't feeling it. And then Tempo Map, the original Kinks song, bit cheeky but I just sort of tempo mapped their original version and it was bonkers because it it moves it must move about five six bpm 
sort of ramps up as it as it goes but that's on. the beauty of old music isn't it really yeah. uh, no one played to a click and there was no, exactly. movement and it wasn't until really the 80s and the sort of the disco era and dance music that we all felt the drummer had to go in there and get everything right and now i'm, I'm always sort of concerned when people are straightening every single beat up all the time that you're taking the soul out of the music i suppose on my last couple of records i've worked with a lot of loops you know when there's kind of loops involved and just for writing purposes with a lot of kind of where the song for me isn't sort of formed yet so there's lots of it's kind of chaos on the session and i'm just trying to sort of piece it together and, and work out what i'm keeping and what i'm not moving sections around it's kind of it's quite handy but there's lots of other moments where i'll just i'll just record free and and um and just let it be and I mean, I suppose, yeah, I'm recording solo, so it's slightly trickier. To... But go, going back to what Guy says about you starting out with that sort of comedy flavour in a way, you're part of that, or you plugged into that sort of English whimsy of of sort of early Peter Gabriel or Sid Barrett or the Kinks to a certain extent, definitely with the, with an English storytelling voice that's, you know, it's time for tea, kind of <laughs> English cultural references as opposed to, the American, which is what most people do. Getting picked up by the fuzz. Yeah, I was going to say, picked, caught by the fuzz. That, that just would have rung bells in, in every teenager's, from whatever generation. I, yeah, well, we knew that it wasn't sort of bigging it up. It, it, it was just a story. It was just a night out. It was like a, you know, any other 15-year-old. Like, yeah, yeah, was yeah. Sort of... But was there, was there actually an event? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely happened. Oh. Yeah, no, I mean, it was sort of... Um, it was one of those real unfortunate, you know, my mate who was driving... He had this old Renault 5, really knackered old Renault 5. We used to call it Whistling Tony because uh, we all used to smoke joints in it and then sort of little blims would drop on the cloth interior and sort of make <laughs> And so the other seats just had these little burn holes all through them. And then it used to kind of whistle as it used to go around corners. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I do that now. <laughs> yeah. So people know I'm coming, obviously. <laughs> whistle around the corner. And that's un unlucky, really, because his, his back brake light was out. So um, well, that was that. And then, uh, yeah, it pulled us over and it just, I don't know, it was just one of those silly things where you're trying to, you think you're going to hide it. You think you're going to keep it from them. And then it all just goes wrong. <laughs> but you're just a teenager. Were you nervous? <laughs> oh, oh, my God, my parents are going to hear this. They're going to know the true story. Or they knew it by then, obviously. Well, they were there. They, they had to yeah. turn up at the station. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was too young to deal with it myself. That's where the lyric in the song, like, you know, yeah. were... If only my brother could be here now. Because I actually tried to call my brother first. I sort of, you know, you get the number that you can call. Or you get your one phone call. And I tried to call him and he wasn't around. Is that why you got him in the band? So that he'd always be there? <laughs> yeah, he'll always be there just to back me up. <laughs> tough times. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that was a bit of a hairy one. No, I mean, I was shitting my pants. Yeah, it was really, it was a really weird, weird night. But uh, there you go. It has an element of the sort of Stevie Marriott about it, don't you think, Guy? That's sort of... Yeah, early Smith Faces yeah. stuff. What you get listening to your music, I have to say, is I feel like you're, you're listening to someone really growing up, going from that sort of early stuff and, you know, really being so young to the maturity of your solo albums and some of the stuff like Moving, which I think is one of the great songs. Yeah. But also your love of music, I think, is in there. You know, I'm picking up elements of, of music that's in my catalogue as well, you know, whether it's T-Rex or Kinks or, you know, various things that crop up. And uh, just, I suppose, the obvious question is, you know, what were your big influences then as that young man? I think they were so varied. 
you know, I mean, I think that myself and Danny and Mick and, and the group of people that we were hanging out with, I suppose, in, in the early 90s, you know, almost that kind of coming out of being a kid and, and, and being into chart music. And, you know, yeah, I was into like, you know, Madonna and, you know, Mr. Mr. Or, you know, whatever the chart hits were in 1988. That was my thing. And then, I don't know, suddenly something happens. You kind of hit 12, 13. And I do remember my uncle went away for a, a couple of years, went to live in the Bahamas for a couple of years. And he left his entire record collection in my mum's basement. And um, he had a brilliant record collection. So many classic, classic records. I was sort of told not to go down there and, and mess with the records, but I used to sort of peek down there and, and then just sort of finger through all these, these incredible records and listen to some Blondie or some Zappa or, you know, JJ Kale or, or the Sex Pistols and, or Patti Smith. That's a great thing for you to have all that lumped in together because to us, that stuff all would have been completely separate. You listen to that, and you, just, yeah. you know, that's yeah. the, and that's why it's quite interesting with your your generation. That thing of coming out of the eighties, where rock music was either there was just like the hair metal thing, or the stuff that cool English people were listening to was was a much more alternative indie type thing, and everything else was the sort of posh sort of stuff that like Gary and I were involved in. But then it's like everyone decided they just wanted to play rock and roll again. Yeah. Notes. Yeah, no, totally. I think, it, yeah, it was that sort of when you suddenly heard sort of dirty guitars coming back in, I suppose, well, sort of late, very late 80s, early 90s and the start of, mm. you know, alternative music in the charts. Although, you know, I remember getting into Stone Roses and, and I think I think they had a record, Sally Cinnamon, that was 89, which I always, always mm. pleases mm. me. Yeah. Mm. Stone Roses were 80s, but uh, yeah, and so, and, and at well, that you know, point, the whole Tony Wilson connection, you know, he was yeah. trying to keep this kind of Mancunian thing going, you know, which yeah. went all the way back to the mid 70s, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, and the Happy Mondays as well. I was really, I, that really hit the right time for me, the whole that big Manchester scene of, of the early 90s, and um, and then yeah, just to hear bands like, um, you know, uh, Spaceman 3 and some of the <laughs> kind of weirder kind of alternative yeah. bands and. And also everyone was like raving at the time. Everyone was kind of the rave scene hit quite hard. Yeah. I was a bit young. I think yeah. I caught like the very tail end of the raves. But that was also kind of hand in hand. It was quite mad. All, all of my mates and stuff were all a bit older. That's what I say. It's quite fun. Because when you mentioned the Stone Roses, then you actually, the weird thing is you attach that to a sort of rave acid house thing, even though yeah. they weren't. They just wore the same trainers, Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. And also sort of psychedelic guitar music that, people will yeah. listen to when they come down <laughs> or like, you know. Yeah, because there's an element yeah. of garage from America going on, you know, the question mark and the, is it the, the Mysterions, what about the Mysterons? No, that's Captain Scarlet, isn't it? <laughs> but there's elements of that in there. But I suppose in a way, your first single with the Jennifers, because we should talk about you getting together with that band. I mean, that had a lot of rush. Uh, sorry, what am I talking about? That, 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 a lot of rush, we're never in there. Save the save prog, the prog. save the prog. <laughs> My brain. That had a lot of stone roses in that in that field, didn't it? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, that was, you know, you can really, I think we wear it quite openly at that point, our influences and, uh, you know, and I suppose the shoegaze stuff was happening in Oxford as well. You know, Ride were, I even went to see live, you know, sort of sneaking around the back of the venue at 14 years old and, Radiohead must have been like gods around it, right? Well, they, were, they weren't they Radiohead were. at that point yet. They were still on a oh, right, I think. Right. And, um, but oh, yeah, okay. they were sort of an album ahead of us, I guess, timing-wise. And so they'd had Pablo Honey out. And um, But did you know them? Did you ever see them in the street? Uh, no, a little bit later on, I think we'd, we'd more run into each other. And then we played together early on. 
Because Colin oh, Greenwood plays on your new solo album, isn't he? Or one of one of your yeah, records. Yeah, on the last one. He Matador. played on the World's Strongest Man, yeah. Oh, World's Strongest Man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's lovely, actually. Yeah, he just came by the studio and had a listen and I just roped him in because he's such an amazing player. But um, yeah, you know, there wasn't too much all getting together, different bands getting together, but there was definitely an Oxford vibe, you know, musically. And it was very diverse. That was the kind of thing I quite liked about Oxford the Oxford music scene around that time, it was, everybody was very different, you know. Was there a club? Because there's always a club, I, isn't there? Well, I was, was going to say, it's the Jericho Tavern. Was that the... Yeah, that was was, that that was one of the first gigs we ever did. I mean, I remember I remember rolling up there with Jennifer's and uh, the sound engineer, who was also the promoter, who was also the guy who ran everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just sort of looked at us and started laughing. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> a great confidence builder, sort of walking in to sort of do a sound check in the... Uh, the sound guy just laughs at you for, and he was just kind of couldn't believe that we were going to play. Thought we all looked like sort of, you know, 12 year old kids, which we weren't far off. How old were you? You were 14, right? Probably, in the yeah, yeah, about four to, well, sort of 13 to 15, the Jennifer's really, a couple of years, yeah. Because most of us have our bands that no one ever notices, but you got signed to Nude really early on, didn't you? Was, yeah. With Saul, I know Saul Galpin, who I see him around the streets here with his walking his little dog. We have a quick chat every now and again. Wow. God, yeah, yeah. I remember going up for that meeting with Saul and then, um, yeah, kind of decided on on going for it. It was like a sort of, what was it, like a three-single deal. <laughs> it was pretty uncommitted, really. <laughs> I think we did one yeah. single. Is he still writing to you, asking when yeah. you're going <laughs> to come? <laughs> because the Jennifers have never made one, that's right. I know, I know. But, yeah, it was a great experience, you know. It was, it was you know, to get paid a bit of money to make something in the studio and so did you, know, you go pro did you leave school well it was probably after the jennifer's it was probably when that was because i was still at school when that was all happening yeah so we were doing gigs and i remember going up in the you know we get the transit van and get our mate daryl who was um loads bigger than us and he'd been in the army he was our tour manager yeah no experience doing anything he could drive basically and intimidate people to give us money so he was good at those things but he could also parachute behind enemy lines and eat a rabbit. So it's probably handy for all that. He was needed. Yeah. He was there to get us out of a hole. But uh, yeah, so he's, yeah, I think I remember taking sort of a bit of maths homework up in the van. And it's more just to sort of please the mum. So she knew that I'd taken it with me. That's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> but did you leave at 16 or did you stay on? Did you then hand it into your teacher and it's just a set yeah, list? There's <laughs> a, a beer stains and sort of yeah. burns on the pages. Called A, D, F. The dog ate G. my set list. That's your next autobiography, guy. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I left. Yeah, I left after GCSEs. Yeah, yeah, at 16. But were your parents sort of worried? Were they going, you should be staying on at school. You can't be a rock star. I think privately they were really worried. But you kind of became a rock star before they had a chance. Because yeah, my, 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 bruv, my brother was a print <laughs> compositor. He was learning to be a print compositor before they all went redundant, obviously. And I think when he was 17, my dad had to write a letter to his boss saying, I'm afraid Martin's going to have to leave the factory because he's going to become a pop star. And that was actually on the letter. Unfortunately, it happened. It sounds like a kind of proud yeah, letter. A proud letter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be a pop star. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they were ever that confident, I don't know really. I mean, I, 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 I've spoken to my dad a lot since about it, and he was like, yeah, you know, privately we were kind of shitting ourselves a bit because it was, because nothing really solid had happened yet. I mean, yeah, you know, that the Jennifer's deal was kind of cool, but, um, you know, we were still very local and Supergrass hadn't really been born yet. So, um, so yeah, I, I definitely, I respect them a lot for making that 
decision and, and just sort of trusting me, I suppose, to give it a go. And then, and then, yeah, it all changed then with Supergrass and those first sort of five or six tracks we wrote and subsequently yeah. EMI came along and suddenly all these A&R people at our, our gigs. And I think really quickly, within months, it just changed and became quite serious, yeah. I like that thing. I was in a documentary, it might be Danny said that you were doing a gig somewhere and then someone started filming and they turned a light on. So this white light went on and you saw the entire audience was just suits. Yeah. Just people from record companies. This just killed your performance. Completely. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Well, up to that point, it had been just our mates, you know, our mates yeah. and brothers and sisters and well, you know, and just get everybody to come to the gig and, and there'd be this party vibe. And then, yeah, it did. It suddenly got serious and more and more of the venue were, as the further you go back, they're getting older and older. And, <laughs> and did you have yeah, all right by like, then and, and some of those, most of the first album by then? I think so, yeah, yeah. The first stage of Supergrass was a bit weird. I think when we were feeling our way, there was there was probably half a dozen songs that never made it that were, yeah, that didn't have the sound yet. You know, we were just kind of playing around with what worked. Where's the name from? Was it Danny? I don't know. I can't remember. I think we had a list. We were around at the cottages. You actually started off like traffic, didn't you? Sort of getting it together in the country. You went straight to that. <laughs> what, sorry, what, I missed this yeah, bit yeah. in my research. What are the cottages? <laughs> I've got a very different vision in my not, mind. Not the sort of cottages. <laughs> <laughs> different sort of cottages, Gary. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah. So I grew up in the country here in Oxford, and, and just round the corner from my family home was a row of four cottages, and, and uh, that's where Mick Quinn lived right. for a while. It was a very like eclectic group of people who lived in these four cottages. There was sort of you know like a doctor and like our mate Daryl who'd just come out of the army, and a couple of stoners. A dealer and it was just this quite sort of hippie community you know you just go let yourself in well actually you didn't let yourself in but you could you could sort of break in kind of nicely and put a fire on and make a cup of tea but yeah yeah so we used to go and play there we used to go and play in the, in the front room of mixed place and um did you bring the songs in or were you writing together in the room we wrote together yeah we wrote together we just set up and, and we had a four track cassette recorder and then we just we start playing with ideas and Quite a lot of time it'd be riffs, you know, riffs would come along, you know, you just get an idea for uh, a quick guitar riff and then we all just jump in and start playing and then we kind of write it together, you know. Yeah, because I noticed that in that documentary when, when you were, um, like when you went, was it Life on Other Plants when you just went to France for months? Hmm. It seems there's no proprietoriness. It seems everyone plays everything. Yeah. And comes up with whatever on whatever. Exactly, yeah. No, it was always yeah. like that. It was always like that. And, I mean, and you know, we tried to keep that all the way through. It got a lot harder. You know, as we went on, we got a lot harder to do it the same, to do it the same sort of approach. You know, everybody grows and, and everybody, you know, evolves and gets into different things. And, and so I think by the time we got to the last couple of records, it was it was tough to do it like that. But I think it was it was a beautiful thing at the, at the beginning, for sure, because it was it was purely instinctive and um, no egos. We were sort of one voice, you know, and we'd, we'd share that sort of journey and we, you know, fully share. But that always gets difficult, and, doesn't it? As focus starts to fall on one person in particular, as time goes on. Yeah, no, definitely in bad habits, you know, we've got some bad habits with lyric writing as well, you know, and just oh, what? not the... kind of doing it in time. And, you know, the sessions would drag on and we wouldn't be able to somehow focus in the lyrics. But was the lyrics not your, just your job as the singer? No, no, we'd share those too. Yeah, we'd, we'd share a lot of those too. So, I mean, it was kind of, we were all going through the same things. So... You know, we'd start on an idea and I'd blurt out a few lines and then, you know, yeah, then Danny would go, oh, yeah, let begin to that. So much like how you can write chord progressions, you know, it's kind of writing, you know, somebody following up with the next line. Yeah. And, you know, that's how we wrote All Right. We were in a, in a little village pub. Yeah, it was sort of, you know, 
whatever one of us would say we are young and then someone goes oh well, we run green and then yeah, you just and you just sort of play off each other and oh, it's weird that one we, we didn't write it knowing that it would become what it what it would it was just tied in with what we wanted to write about which was being young in this town together or in the countryside and you know what we get up to you know and we'd often just spend time with interesting people, with odd people, people that were way older than us, sort of weird little groups of people. We, but yeah, it was our environment and kind of nights out that we'd have. Guys, you seem to be really aware in the band of trying to put across the character. You know, you were, you mentioned shoegazing earlier. You were far from that. And you were kind of aware that you were selling mm. a kind of goofiness as well, that even on the record, when you're making that first record, you were going for chats between the tracks sped up. And uh, that was the kind of a, quite a mature awareness of how you were going to promote yourself well i suppose it was also just the, the music that we were into our, our influences at the time when we were hanging out together over the cottages were just uh pretty varied you know it'd be you know zappa and, and yeah. the muppets records and um sort of comedy <laughs> that what, as well so working with henson for a video i'm sorry to skip ahead but i'm just wondering so was that sort of like a lifelong dream was this oh, amazing yeah it's yeah. incredible I, I still can't believe we, you know we got them in and and not only that, but the same puppeteers who had originally wow. puppeteered Miss Piggy in, in, in the original programs and stuff, they're still around these guys. And um, yeah, it was incredible to work with them. Our musical background sort of was really diverse. And, and like I said, these comedy records that we were really into as well. And, and you know, yeah, Zappa and Beefheart and Gong. And like weird moves, you know, weird turns. And the Beatles, you know, just, just doing kind of time changes. I actually had that in my notes because from very early on, a lot of your songs, you've got very sophisticated sets of chords and some of which is quite beatly. Some of your well, changes. And moving as well, yeah, which has, moving has that yeah. amazing time tempo change. And uh, there's a little touch of Animals, uh, Pink Floyd album on that verse. There's a few times when you play acoustic, you go into that dogs, dogs yeah. sort of feel, I noticed. That was a big, big record for me. And I think, I wrote the music for, for moving and had a few of the lyrics on a demo tape. I had a, I had a demo that I just gave to the boys. And, and at that point, actually, I was, I was listening to a lot of animals. Oh, again, sorry, we're skipping around here. I mean, the chronology thing's very difficult. Like on Road to Ruan, the opening track, Endurance, it's parts yeah, four, yeah. five and six. I wondered if that was a Floyd nod as well. <laughs> yeah, it was just to avoid going up your own ass too much. <laughs> so, you know instead of it being really seriously proggy, let's do parts four, five, and six, where one, two, and three, I don't know, do they exist? Yeah, but this is, this, is, this <laughs> is interesting though, because you you, you were never worried, and, I, and maybe sometimes to the detriment of, or the anger of some of your more committed fans, of jumping ship on genres and going into music that was a little bit more difficult at times, or, you know, or, or different styles. Well, exactly. And I mean, I think that's what those bands that inspired us, those artists that inspired us to do, to make weird turns, to do odd moves and to explore. And then, and then also to not take it all really super seriously, I think. You know, I think that's where, you know, again, we, we grew up not only listening to the Beatles music, but watching the Beatles interviews. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and a lot of those bands around the time, the interviews were so great because they were sort of silly. I mean, there were times obviously where we could get those iconic quotes from, from Lennon or McCartney in, in whatever interviews, but quite a lot of the time there were, just messing around. Goons. Kind of. It was the goons yeah. with a big influence. And funny yeah. enough, the goons influenced yeah. you, even though you probably never heard a single goons radio show. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, Monty Python and stuff. And just, you know, start going in a direction and then you just take it somewhere weird and, you know, cut it dead or 
I mean, I, you know, I remember making um, my own mixtapes in my bedroom when I was sort of, you know, 10 years old, 12 years old and, and recording stuff off the radio. And then I'd always, I had a little microphone, I'd always put little bits in between. It's like making my own radio show almost. And so, you know, a song would finish. I go, right, enough of that, move on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're this gang of mates, right, who have this fantastic shared interest in music. Then this whole thing happens around. It becomes incredibly successful. But it's just this gang of mates in the middle of it having a laugh, certainly for, you know, quite a while. That seems like how it's going. Yeah, yeah. I think that was really key for us to sort of feel our own way and to get into our own bubble and... and you know, find out what it was that kind of made us tick, you know. And I think, I think once we got the first four or five tracks for that first record for Aisha Coco, I think we knew where we were at. And I think also getting signed to EMI, I mean, it was like ridiculous, like 10 album deal or something when I was 17. The confidence that that gives you to think, right, we're on something here. And it was very much the three-piece kind of energetic mm. sort of punk rock and roll. I think yeah. that's I mean, Richard we III, then, like, that's just the punk riff that was just waited a long time to be written, really. <laughs> Well, nice one. Yeah, yeah. I love that title, even though it's not in the lyric, right? Yeah, yeah. That was where we were calling all our tracks by human names because they weren't titled yet. So, you know, there'd be Dave and Susan. See, that's you all over. That's brilliant. But, you know, you get lumped in with that Britpop thing. There are a few things that are very diverse in Britpop and other things that tie it together. One, I guess, is the very sort of Englishness of the approach of most of the singers, whether it's, you know, Mancunian or London or Oxford Tones. But you've got Liam and Oasis taking themselves extraordinarily seriously, you know, and 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 yet Blur and you doing a more of a comic sort of bent on it all. I mean, how did you feel at the time about being associated with it? It's like us and New Romantics, whatever that meant, you know. There was a diversity in in the music, but how did you feel about that lumping together? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a difficult one. I mean, we never really pushed against or heavily denied the. The Britpop thing, I think it was just something that just happened. I mean, we were new wave of new wave when we first signed alongside bands like These Animal Men and, and Smash. And, um, Did that ever really catch on as a genre? No, no it lasted about three months or something. So good yeah, they no. named it twice, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's better yeah. than Nwabam and people still talk yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a weird one. And then, and then yeah, quickly, then, I don't know, this, this movement happened... And I think we were all very different bands, you know, Oasis, Blur, Pulp, Supergrass, Elastica. It was kind of pretty different. Ocean colour sounding band. Did you have relationships with them with a, at the time? Well, not really. Or, no. Or did you hate each other? Did you publicly, I can't, I can't remember you getting involved in any of the slanging matches or anything. 
No, no, we were far too nice. I suppose there was a looking back to the (laughs) 60s initially. I mean, I I listen to your music. I can hear a lot more 70s in it to a large extent. And, and, you know, in a retaliation against what we had done in the 80s, making posh music and taking ourselves very, very seriously. Well, I, I don't know. It was all, I think we were really open musically, I think. And I think, you know, you guys in a lot of the 80s stuff, that was all part of the background as well. It was kind of, it was what drove us to, you know, I suppose coming out of a time when music had a certain stylistic approach and an image and and then, you know, it's all reactions, isn't it? It's kind of everything kind of reacts against the last thing. And and I think, yeah, so we, we were, you know, I was an 80s kid and, you know, when I learned how to play guitar and when, when Supergrass got together, we got in the band, it just felt like, let's just go mental. Let's get these yeah. guitars up. And I think also the, the sound that we made was, was really about our environment as well. And, and being in this little living room and having to turn the amps up to get above Danny's cymbals because he just hit the cymbals so hard all the time, you know. Everyone could really play. I mean, that was a great rhythm section. Everyone could really play. Yeah, Mick was like four or five years older than us and or older than me. Which back then is yeah. like a hundred years. <laughs> Isn't it when you're yeah. that age? Do you know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> exactly. But he, yeah, he'd been sort of busking for years and playing acoustic guitar. And so when, you know, when... When we got together with Mick, he was, you know, he was really... But he, he never condescended. He never, he wasn't the, the older voice in the band. That's a good point, actually. I mean, there was always a bit of a sort of, you know, it's like the dad of the band, but that's cool. That's just the way it is. And I think we, the three of us just really saw the same vision, I think. you know. Why didn't you get your brother in the band straight away? Uh, there just wasn't any keyboards. There wasn't, it was just... But your mum was wasn't going, look, band. you know, he's got, he, he really needs this gig. You know, That's what happened to me. I mean, Martin only ended up playing well, in the band. Say, Gary knows this very well. <laughs> that would be so tough. But yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just more when the recordings happened for Aisha Coco. I could play piano. I'd, I'd learned on piano. That was my first instrument. I played piano on all the first album. And then, we, yeah, we had to play it live. So uh, we need a player. And my brother was a much better player than I was. He didn't, yeah, he hadn't come through different bands, I suppose, like we had, you know, through our early teens. And, and, and before you, you carry on and we jump time, I just wondered, did Spielberg really come to you wanting to make a, a sort of monkeys TV series? That was 96. That was when we started on In It For The Money. That's, we went down to, to Sawmills. We had a bunch of songs that we wanted to start recording. And, and uh, I think Going Out was the first one we recorded. Sounded great. It was a lot heavier, a lot more expansive than I Should Coco. And then... I remember I wrote Richard III in an old, in my little bedsit flat with my girlfriend, and I, I was put that on a four-track recorder on a cassette recorder. And it felt like a different vibe to Coco, and and so we were moving on with this record. It, it, it was it was sounding really cool, and then we got the call that Spielberg wanted to meet us and fly us out to his uh, his ranch and uh, private. No, no. <laughs> and yeah just have a chat about ideas and and we got a bit of a brief on on what he was thinking did you go you went yeah yeah, yeah. we went over to amblin his amblin ranch kind of wow. place and, and uh we met and we sat around a big table with his we had about two or three pas with him and but i was cool i sat next to him and we were chatting I, I, we ended up i've always been a big twilight zone fan and i sort of grew up watching all the twilight yeah. zone uh episodes Okay, that was his first thing, wasn't it? He did that one, the great one about the person has their eyes replaced. Oh, right. I don't, I don't know. When I... you first went to America, you know, you and I in the early 80s, and you, you couldn't sleep, yeah. you'd turn on the TV. There was always Twilight Zone on at three in the morning, wasn't That's there? That's right, yeah. Fif- 1950s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I kind of grew up on those. So, so I was just sat next to him, and I suppose I, I don't know how I got onto it, but yeah, we started talking about 
episodes that I loved and you know terror at 30,000 feet and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, what with the guy who who's last man on earth and he, all he wants to do is read he finds a library and his glasses fall on the floor and shatter and and it was great we had this great conversation and I suppose I was trying to sort of put in there that if we did something could we make it kind of weird and sort of Twilight Zone I'm, I'm sure that's probably not where he was at I think he was more along the monkey's fun meets the banana splits or something anyway but yeah we knew that we had this record that was really sounding cool and we were, we were definitely really focused on that and yeah it was quite a quick easy decision to not pursue it um did you think of going yeah. back to him later yeah like, yeah yeah 15 <laughs> years later yeah he's still, he's still up for it uh, yeah i mean it was it was also just not i don't know i don't know you say you'll never work in this town again <laughs> <laughs> we ended it very amicably uh, but no I mean ultimately I think his kids saw the alright video and I very possibly just said daddy I want that band I don't know I don't know how it works in Steven Spielberg's house I think that's how it works I think that's exactly how yeah. it works but um, Sawmills you're talking about because um, you're kind of synonymous with that studio aren't you you just discovered that early on yeah yeah frankly well, it, it strikes me a residential studio on an estuary with a boat Seems like an absolute recipe for disaster. Uh, there were a few disasters, <laughs> but in the main, I'd yeah. say it was a sort of a brilliant way to get away. And also, Coco had gone pretty massive, so we were, we were kind of big around after writing Ice Coco and performing it. So, so when, when we went back for it for the money, it was a great place to go. It was kind of just away from everything. You can only get to it by boat yeah. or by a, a, a walkway. Yeah, oh, by uh, uh, train tracks, yeah. Really? Oh, my yeah, word. The crew must hate it. Crew must hate that studio and hate you for working yeah. there. <laughs> just, it's, you know, getting shopping in, you know, getting food. It's, yeah. just, it's just a real effort. But I suppose there's but, that sense that once you're in there, you've got to finish. You know, you, don't, you can't get out too much. No, no, exactly. Well, you know, that's it. You just you just hole up. And I don't know, I sort of, I don't know, sort of missed that element of, disappearing as a band like when i was a kid sort of bands would disappear to make a record like for months and then you know, oh, right. yeah, you yeah. wouldn't know where they were and you'd sort of talk to your mates and they go oh they split up yeah. you know because i suppose there was no social media there was no sort of daily right. you know updates right. smash things. hits was the only thing you yeah yeah, yeah you get the odd bit of a column in one of the red tops or something saying we're in the studio but um i really like that element of, of, of being just left to explore and to experiment and just have this little adventure that we could go on. Yeah, I mean, we, we I've worked, you know, worked in residential studios before and I, I always, I'd be terrified of them now. But uh, I think back then when there were very few commitments in, in your life and you're 24-7 the band, I found them really, really creative spaces. There's a really good documentary at the moment about the Montserrat Air Studio that's on and the stuff that came out of that was only coming out of that because of where they were. You know, you felt that fed into the music. Yeah, absolutely. And also getting that balance, right, of uh, getting stuff ready before, you know, having tracks ready to go, but then also writing in the studio. I think we were always into writing in, in the studio. I think there was, just because it was a different feel, you know, to nailing songs before you go in and, and, and having everything ready. I think just that, that experimentation was really exciting for us. I always found the problem with residential studios is too much food. <laughs> mm -hmm. You come down at 11, you have a massive cooked breakfast, then you break for lunch at 1. Yeah, we, and then sort of tea and cake comes out of four. True. Then there's a massive supper at seven and it's food and it's there. So you yeah. eat it. But we all have got 19 year old <laughs> metabolisms. It just be, That's true. <laughs> you go play for like five hours and then. Yeah. Tell us about America with Supercross. How did that, because you played over there quite a lot. And uh, how did they react to you? I mean, America was great. The first tour we did, I think probably end of 94. 
started in 95. So I was like 18, I think. And, and I, I remember it being, you know, looking back, I think it was a sort of defining moment for me personally. I, I think also for the band just to, to do that six, eight week tour on a bus um, across America at that age was, um, yeah, I kind of grew up pretty quick. Just found the freedom quite exhilarating and doing these these mad gigs. I don't know that the audiences were, were different. They, they, you know, you get the sort of Anglophile intensity of yeah, young yeah. American fans and... Um, they talk to you afterwards, but in, in depth, you know. They must have missed the humour a bit and the irony of what, in some of the stuff you were doing. At times, yeah, because obviously, yeah, just not, not having that, that background of, you know, of, yeah, all the stuff I mentioned about the, sort of those weird little comedy records and stuff. But yeah, it, it, was, it was great. It was a real eye-opener and, and just, you know, made some great friends and, and just did some great touring with, you know, bands like Food Fighters. Did they open for you or did you open oh, for No, no, we opened for them. And, um, uh, it's that great thing of... Ty got up and played drums with you. Yeah, didn't he? yeah, that's, Did he? Right. that's yeah, amazing. That's... But then Danny just runs off and jumps yeah. on him. Yeah, <laughs> just ends the song. How, like how Keith jumps. Moon? Well, in fact, he used to kick his drums over at the end of the set, Danny, didn't he? Yeah, so... we got one of the crew guys to nail the drums down for one gig, and but we hadn't told Danny. <laughs> so he kind of almost broke his leg at the end of the show just trying to kick them over. Yeah, but uh, no, it was yeah, it was great. That was the start of our sort of long relationship with the Foos, and uh, yeah, they just loved. That English sound. They've even had Rick Astley come and join them on stage. You know, only the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Just the other day. Uh, what yeah. about towards the? I know you're back together now, but we'll, we'll call it the end, sort of end of part one, as it were. We're it's a reunion, I suppose. Right, right. Sorry, you sound like you're not totally committed there, Gaz. But <laughs> no, I, I know. Does it's, that? Yeah. Does that mean you're back together? Have you to got Tony Hadley's script there? Reinvigorate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we're together, we're together. Yeah, we're together, we're together at the moment. Yeah, uh, to play some shows, sure, obviously. But um, what was the issues for you? Was it a writing thing? I mean, I know you did that whole album release, The Drones, that that has now gone into myth and legend and no one has heard any of it. But did you find yourself not writing as that unit anymore? Was there a growing sense that you had ideas that were more finished? Uh yeah, I mean, it was tricky because we kind of went in, the last record we made, Diamond Hoo-Ha, we made in Berlin with Nick Launay, who's a... Oh, yeah, I know a, Nick, yeah. A producer. In fact, I loved, loved those sessions. I great studio, was, right? Uh, and Hansa was a brilliant studio, yeah. Great to be there and all the history. I think we really felt that. That kind of worked pretty well, I think, having a strong producer. So for the drones sessions, we went in on our, on our own again, just taking a lot of our own gear and, and writing in the studio a lot. And it just quite quickly, I suppose, yeah, we just... I don't know. It's it's one of those tough things where I think there was a lot of experimentation going on, but in maybe not such a productive way. Too much maybe swapping of instruments, and I sensed a bit of boredom with almost what our strengths were and stuff. There was just a bit of tiredness with that. Yeah, the ideas that were coming just didn't feel particularly formed. They felt a bit sort of diluted. Um, my whole life, sort of, you know, you, you you write stuff and you record stuff, and you kind of get back from a session and just desperate to play it to a friend or to my missus yeah, yeah. or my family and I didn't feel any of that I didn't feel like I wanted to play it to anyone really uh, alien feeling to not be super proud of something that yeah it's really hard to pin down but you just know that after whatever three months you know you should have something but you know we, we, we should have had something by that point well I suppose you know you were started off as kids with all of that enthusiasm and you know you carry on making albums you are growing up musically you are growing up as, as as humans but you still try and retain a lot of that youthfulness you know because that's now become part of the whole vibe the image 
But suddenly you're in Berlin and you're 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 all men. You're not you're not a gang anymore. That's the thing. You do you when you're a kid, you want to be in a gang. Simple as that. You know, or what we didn't realise was maybe, or what we couldn't maybe do was was evolve in in the right way. You know, it's hard, isn't it? Because you think about the bands that just keep going and going and going. I mean, Foo Fighters are just mentioned, obviously, you know, Radiohead or The Stones or these these bands that just keep going. And I suppose it's about, it's either about getting something early on that's so, that's so concrete and bulletproof that it can withstand time and different band members going through different phases in life. Or you evolve and you, you learn how to be relevant in a different way. We just didn't manage that sort of shift how many bands can do it? Pretty good, pretty good run. It's a pretty guy, good run. I'm saying, though. how Come many on. bands can do this? You know, I mean, the Rolling Stones do it because yeah, it's exactly. kind of an industry. Yeah. It's yeah. a corporation. You too, we had Adam Clayton on, and, and I think they have a sort of spiritual loyalty to each other. They are, they are a family. I mean, they are, you know. It's very rare that anyone can still have anything creatively in common with each other. Yeah, I think we're all really conscious of not ruining a good thing, you know, and not really aware not to release something i mean we had a terrible playback with the label that we were with at the time i think we'd done about half a dozen songs i think we were in battery studios in london yeah they came on in and we were like right do you want to hear some stuff and you know and it was just one of those sort of really demoralizing playbacks where i remember listening and thinking this isn't right that's awful when you hear it through their ears. That's the, I said, that's always the thing, isn't it? Everything's great until someone's there and then you're them, aren't you? You're literally them going, oh my God, it's not that good. <laughs> and they're kind of sort of expressionless, you know, and you look down at their foot and like it's not tapping or all of these things and you get really paranoid. And it was horrible, really terrible feeling. It was like kind of never, I'd never felt that before. It almost felt like failure. It's like shit, you know, we don't, we don't do failure. But, um, it became never release the drones. Well, it, yeah, exactly. Wow. Did any of that go into your solo record, or did you start from scratch? No, no, yeah, no, no. I no, yeah. I decided to make the sort of decision to not be in the band. How was that? How was that? I mean, was that a, like a moment, a blinding flash, or yeah, it's just like a kind a of accumulation of bad days, and my thought processes mm -hmm. weren't good, and and. Um, felt very negative about music and yeah, and felt like a lot of, you know, confidence had gone as well. And so I just wanted to to step away to kind of recover, I suppose, and just to... just to. Was it quite mutual? I mean, was, was um, there a kind of... Yeah, I mean, I said my bit and the others were kind of like, okay, cool, yeah. No, I suppose it's not, <laughs> I suppose it's not really working, is it? I mean, there was not really any resistance. So nobody tried to persuade me to, to stick with it. So I think we all felt it. But yeah, I had no, I had no plans to do a solo thing or anything. I just wanted to step away. But then, you know, I suppose, you know, as you guys know, it's sort of, it's all I've ever done really. So after a couple of months getting my head together, mm -hmm. I just started writing, yeah. But that must've been liberating as well because you didn't have to write for the same box, you know, voices and, you know, you, you could have any player on it and uh, you could play everything. That freedom was, was pretty mind blowing to begin with. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, and it took me a little, you know, the first record I did wasn't great. It had some good moments on it. There were moments where you could still hear a bit of Supergrass in there. And I, I wanted to shake that off and because I didn't want anything to sound like Supergrass. I was sort of, I had too much respect for the boys and what we'd done. I just think that should stay where it is. So whatever I'm going to do, it needs to be it needs to be different. It needs to be what's happening inside my head and not trying to, to grab hold of anything that I'd done before or trying to not repeating myself in, in any way. So that was, yeah, it was an exciting time. Kind of weird, but, but exciting. And how did it do? How did it do for you? Did your audience go along with it? It was good. I mean, it was a good start, you know? I mean, it was, uh, I enjoyed 
starting again from a live point of view as well and doing mad little gigs and I had no Supergrass songs in, in the live set at all and people would often sort of say, why aren't you, you, you've got to do something, surely. So you were literally just doing that album? Yeah, 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 just doing that, that record and then... That's quite a short set, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is compared to the sets you play normally. <laughs> well, mind you, the Supergrass sets were always short because there was only, they, well, the songs were two and a half minutes long, but... Um, but no, that was that was cool. I, I really <laughs> enjoyed that time. And then it just started to, uh, the momentum started to build. And, and then the second record, Matador. I, I, Matador is a great album. I mean, I have to say, you know, I yeah, really enjoyed listening to it. I mean, Detroit is fantastic record. I mean, because it's, it's also so melodic and soulful. Is there Needle's Eye is also another great track that I, I really loved and picked up. Oh, nice one. Yeah, but, but a great album. You got a Mercury nomination and... It was, yeah, it was a mad time, actually, that one. That was brilliant. It was just, yeah, one of those records where everything sort of came together. But it was also just a realisation that actually I just let it be. I kind of, I don't know how to, how to sort of say it. It's a matter of what you're expecting, isn't it? I mean, did you get what you expected more than you expected? Or, you know... Yeah, I suppose more than, more than I expected in a way because I... It was kind of a record where I thought I'd be myself. And I suppose it's always quite frightening when you really be yourself. And it's like, if it doesn't work, it's kind of like, oh, fuck. Okay. So I, that hasn't worked. I did it all on my own, really. I love playing drums. You know, I love the drums. Do you? Wow. Bass, bass is my favourite instrument. So quite right. So it's a real Paul right. McCartney, Stevie Wonder vibe going on making your records. Well, yeah. Initially, you say Stevie, actually, because I love laying hi-hats on afterwards as well. I'm not a great drummer, so I, I kind of get enough together and I might just sort of loop the odd section or, or kind of fix them a bit. So, you know, I'll fix little bits up, but then you want to, I want to get something with real movement. So overdub hi-hats. I love that, that little Stevie trick. Oh, yeah, 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 laying, laying, laying them on afterwards. But um, yeah, so it was just a lot of fun just to explore. And then you go out on tour with that and are you already thinking about the next album? Is that how you've been working? I mean, it's just like Guy said at the beginning, it's sort of pouring out of you. Yeah, uh, that sort of four years was was very creative, yeah, yeah. And I think I think it was just the confidence after the reception that Matador got. It gave me that confidence to move forward quickly. And and I'd done some good bits in America as well. And you know the shows were going great. And I I played Palladium in London, which is the biggest sort of solo gig I'd ever done. So things were sort of moving mm. moving up and moving forward. So that just pushed me on to do the next record. In songwriting, you know, you you have the humour at the beginning which in a way is a kind of defence mechanism from ever having to be completely honest and doing the emotional heart-on-the-sleeve kind mm. of songwriting, which obviously we all know, you know Tom York is the master of. And as you've grown, you've, you've released that humour. And in the last album, there's some real sensitive vocals. I've been comparing you to various people all the way through, but Al Stewart popped into my head, that kind of beautiful English storytelling, but it's about you now. Well, you know, I mean, life's sort of quite mental as well. And I think a lot's happened, you know, and, and through my late 20s and 30s and some mad stuff happened. And, you know, I mean, I lost my mum. She was pretty young in a way when I lost her. And that, that had been a massive sort of effect on me and, and kind of, you know, the sense of your own mortality and, you know, shit, things happening to great people. And, and, and just it just changes your sort of, changes your mindset. It took a while. I mean, I suppose I never really... And you don't really ever get over these things. It definitely, yeah. Because you wrote a song about her, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, she pops up on lots of little bits and pieces, you know. And um, But it had a big effect. And then having a family and, and, you know, I feel the same as I, I kind of ever did, you know. And I think, you know, I have the same, you know, need to look at things in a silly way and not to 
not to take stuff too seriously. I think that's still a big part of my makeup. But musically, yeah. I mean, I grew up listening to Neil Young as well. And, and, and I love the solo Lennon records were probably had the biggest impacts on me when I started solo and Harry Nielsen as well. A bit of Graham oh. Nash as well. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. Songs for Beginners is a beautiful record. Oh, what an album. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, the yeah, Lennon yeah. stuff, I, I just sort of, it's almost like when you kind of hear him bleeding on the record. The yeah. first one. It's the first one, isn't it? That, yeah. That's, that's Mother and all of that. So the screaming. Primal, primal scream. And yeah, lyrically in the performances and it just feels, and you, and you get this, um, this raw emotion and that was what was most inspiring. Less, definitely less about singer-songwriters. Yeah, but it's funny, Lennon, I can see that because he's someone who's always, you know, there's a shyness about Lennon that he's covered up with his humour and maybe overt aggression now and again. And then every now and again, you see the cracks in his armour, which he lets you into. And it's extraordinary what's going on, the maelstrom. I mean, lyrically, it's kind of, it's tough to do, but if I can try and get something across lyrically that's, that's really exposed emotionally, I don't know, I, I find it quite an amazing thing if you can get it right. You know, I've said all the way along with, with my solo stuff, it's never about being too sombre or feeling sorry for oneself or, or, or any of those elements. It's more about not being afraid just to... I don't know, I've got a song called Vanishing Act on the last record, which is just about a panic attack almost and, and how raw that can be. And the chorus is just me kind of screaming, I'm going to get my fucking head straight. I've got to get my fucking head straight, like you'd say in life. And, and I think there's lyrics through the verse that are kind of quite revealing, but... Um, but I like to try and get that in the right way. If I can get the tone right, then I think it really works. Well, there's always someone out there you're speaking to. I don't think there's a, that's a possible thing. I don't think you can think that way. You can't think, oh, this, this is too self-conscious or this is too mad. Because, you know, you're doing the job of art, which is trying to say to someone out there who you don't know, you're not alone in the world. Yeah, you know, and I suppose, yeah. yeah. Sharing I'm, your you truth. Know, I don't even know if I particularly look ahead like that when I'm writing them, but it's just, yeah, again, just what I learned from Matador is just try and do what I do and be as natural about it as possible and kind of as instinctive and spontaneous. I think, you know, something that I learned a lot, you know, with the background of, of Supergrass and being in a band and quite young is to embrace the spontaneity and, and the instincts of, of when you're writing or recording. Yeah, no, I just think that's a really strong sort of way to, to look at stuff rather than having anything too calculated just to let it breathe and, and let it be you're going to be going on tour right with uh, the band yeah 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 i was we, just we, wondering we, how's it's going to feel to revisit those songs and those guys yeah yeah it's, i mean it's been great it's been great we got together like end of 2019 to start rehearsing and um right. yeah it's quite weird you know getting in a room and um i think one of the first things we did was play caught by the fuzz and it was weird because it's sort of it was kind of a little bit messy you know as it's going to be when you sort of haven't played for 10 years but um you know, within a few minutes, I started to feel that almost like you're kind of, you're all tied to each other, like you're all like physically yeah. sort of, your limbs are sort of tied to each other. And I remembered how Danny's drum fills are always a bit fast. Like, so he never lands, like, you know, he always lands early on, on the <laughs> kick and things like that. I've, I totally forgot about. So, you know, getting back into that zone was pretty wild, actually. Yeah, it was amazing just to sort of, and also you just sort of realise it's not about almost rehearsing or anything. It's just about a chemistry that, that was there from the beginning and it's not gone away, which is kind of really interesting because, you know, as much as I was saying about the recording aspect of it, and I don't think it would be a great idea for us to get in and do any recording. I, I think it's the wrong thing to do, but I think as far as performance, it's been incredible to see how, how together we are and, and how that chemistry hasn't 
really been affected, you know. That must be lovely. That must be really, yeah, really Yeah, nice. you can hear the songs in a cool way. And I think a lot of that, yeah, whatever, a lot of that pain or, or that paranoia from years ago is sort of faded now. So you're able to sort of look at those songs and, and appreciate them. And, and we can play all right now. And <laughs> we didn't play all right for a few years way back when. And I don't know, I play it now and I sort of think, yes, yeah, it's a fucking great song. It's, it's, you know, I can see why this is still played all the time. It, you know, we, we nailed it. It's an anthem. It's an anthem for a generation. Yeah. You know, yeah. and occasionally bands write one of those and uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of, really. And it, you know, you were important for a whole group of people at a certain age. And and the fact you're willing to go and plug into that, you're also getting satisfaction out of that as well, because we have one this amazing ability as musicians that we can somehow occasionally step back into our own youth. Mm. For lockdown, I was doing these YouTube videos of just showing people how to play records I'd played on years ago as my contribution. But what was interesting was it was stuff I hadn't played for years. And it's like having a conversation with your younger self. It's yeah. like, oh, this guy, <laughs> this guy. I, I remember, you know, one of the assholes. <laughs> now he knows. Finally, he realizes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like guitar yeah, parts exactly. that I now, or solos that I, I play now. And I'm sort of like, oh, really? not that great is it is it and then yeah but they won't let you play it any other well, way that's the thing is that i sort of then i start to yeah. mess around with it and think you know oh, i could do it so much better let me try this and, and then I, it took me a few weeks to sort of think that's what i played yeah. i was 18 i couldn't play guitar very well but um you know i think i think if i can tap into where i was and, and then as soon as you play the solo and it's like oh yeah right i've got it now i've got the way but... yeah you don't want to bring your recent knowledge of modes back into <laughs> Your early solos. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of Miles Davis. Goes <laughs> against the supercraft ethos. Yeah. But the thing about All Right, it's one of those generational things. Like common people have the same yeah. thing from the time where it's a song that was written to be sung back to you by an audience. That's its job. Yeah. 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 I mean? mean, you know, yeah, they're weird, those ones. Yeah. They don't often come along again without being too calculated. It's just us. It's always what you want to hear, man. It's like, that's what I do now still. It's, I just sort of, you want to write what you want to hear or I, I kind of want to write yeah. what I haven't heard out there. But All Right has got this great kind of, I mean, this is not a disparaging, I mean, I don't mean this, anyway, but it's like the Double Deckers theme. Oh, no, God. Don't, oh, God. you probably don't even know what I mean. But it's like the Double Deckers <laughs> theme tune. It's it's totally about <laughs> youth. Yeah, it's it's like the Children's Film Foundation theme that was never written or, you know, I, I mean, it's mean. just. And actually we, lo we love that Double Deckers theme, you know. <laughs> See, I nailed it, guys. Yeah. That was risky, uh, but no, it paid no. off. What well done, well done, Gary. <laughs> That's one for the older <laughs> listeners. Tiny little nerdy detour. You worked at Hansa. I was just thinking, if I was at Hansa, did you tr think, oh, let's set up the mics three mics 15 feet apart to do a vocal like Bowie did Heroes? I don't think we did. Or any try and copy any of the Visconti Bowie stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we tried. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think the actual room that they recorded in is sort of no longer... All right has that purpose and i think it's simply a big kind of theater room now or something because matador cover would seem like a bit of a hero's homage that photograph yeah i mean i was a bit worried about that i worked with rankin i went in and, and did some photos of rankin who's got a pretty insane track record and um i don't know yeah i was unsure about it it was kind of my idea but it was more of a, a vibe thing can we get that sort of directness of it's a great shot vibe? Thank you. But yeah, he, he sort of Rankin kind of pulled it into a slightly different area. But yeah, it's definitely pretty open. Your humour is in there. But yeah, but you also, you directly, re I mean, turn-ons is a direct reference to pin-ups, isn't it? Yeah. For the hot rats thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, and that was probably, I thought, one of the 
best sort of covers albums I'd heard, along with Pussycats by Lennon and Nielsen, which is an incredible oh. covers record where they're sort of, they, they seem in competition with each other. To, who I don't can, know that album. God, wow. Why don't I know yeah. that? Who can trash their voice the first. It's like these. But that you know, literally, <laughs> you know, of an evening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's an insane record. Yeah. We were like, yeah, there's been some great covers records in the past. So why don't we, uh, well, have a crack and it was great it was myself and danny and nigel godrich who, who made that record and i think it just it just yeah sort of turned us all on really that's what we that's we thought would be an amazing three-week session just to sort of not have any expectations it wasn't going to do anything we weren't expecting it to chart or anything it's just like let's get in the studio and, and sort of treat it with the same spirit as those records were done mm-hmm. in a day without too much kind of serious mm. sort of business mm. or you know too much integrity or <laughs> for how to make it a big record, you know. So yeah, it was it was exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, very very punky. Love is the drug. Yes, yeah, that was. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, those conversations, just thinking about what track to do, they were good. You know, we'd have a few beers right. and sit around, and it's like, right, what do you reckon? Pinups is still one of my favourite albums, and for some of those tracks, I virtually all of those tracks, I don't think I'd ever heard before. Yeah. Uh, you know, but with the original act, you know, certainly the CMLE play. That was the first time I'd ever heard that. Yeah. Bizarrely. So when's your next gig, guys? Uh, we've got a few coming up. We just actually, we just played at uh, Crystal Palace Bowl last weekend. Which oh, was sorry. A... I missed that. Sorry. No, no, it's brilliant. That was a brilliant gig though. That was kind of, yeah, everything really came together. Who else was on the bill? It was the Cribs. It was the Cribs and us. Um, so it's like a series of shows that are doing in the, in the bowl every weekend or something. Amazing. Uh, but that, that must a, be that lovely. Cracker, that must yeah. be really, and, really um, nice. Yeah, a few other festivals, like four or five more more festivals. A lot of them have been moved to 22. So it'll be a pretty busy summer next year. We were supposed to do all this in one year. We were supposed to do it all in 2020 and that was it. So it's it's turning into one hell of a long reunion. <laughs> yes, not quite the reunion I had in mind. <laughs> well, listen, I, I'm, I'm often in Oxford. I'd love to pop by your studio. That would be an absolute pleasure, man, yeah. So, and, and good luck with the solo. I'm good luck with the tour. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate really, it. Really, really brilliant. Really delightful. All right, Gaz. Thank you. Okie dokes. That was delightful. Oh, he was, I think, that was the sort of essence of what we do on Rock on Tours for me. That stopped feeling like any kind of, you know, there was no interview sort of thing going on. You know, there was just like, you know, three guys chatting and everyone feeling really comfortable about that. I hope we didn't get too geeky on the gear side of things for people. I, do you know what? I think it's nice to throw in a... There's not much of it. I think it's nice to confuse a couple of people. It's like when I listen to Gardner's Question Time. I haven't got a clue what anyone's saying, but I'm quite happy... <laughs> Let's just move along. Yeah, exactly. Gooseberry. <laughs> What's interesting, and I f- I feel that, you know, these new solo albums he's made, these recent, you know, over the last few years, they're really extraordinary. Yeah, they I mean, are. If they were coming out of the Brian Eno camp or the Peter Gabriel camp, the focus of attention would be so strong. But like all of us, we get weighed down a little by who people perceive us as which is something by not having an art rock background. and the fact is yeah, with, with this guy yeah. this is something he was doing as a teenager yeah you know and as you know he's a man because that's why it's been great listening to it, his whole catalog but just how it's that old coming out fully formed thing and his yeah his experimentation is all really spot on it's not a lot of misses no i right. really enjoyed it anyway um we'll have an equally great guest next we week will. i'm sure 
that. And thank you for listening and thank you for leaving comments and subscribing and being the great audience that you are. We, we follow you on social media as much as you follow us. And until then, it's, it's good night from the laddie. And good night from I have no idea where to go with that. <laughs> no, who would? I can't, just, some Scott just came off the top of my head. Anyway, see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.